Hello and welcome to the Final Girls podcast. I'm Anna, co-founder of the Final Girls, a UK-based film collective exploring the intersections of horror film and feminism. In this first series of our podcast, we're focusing entirely on witches, from horror films to witchy comedies to childhood nightmarish favourites. This episode, we're going to be taking a little detour and explore a very specific variation of the figure of the witch, and that is the Conjure Woman. I'm joined by the brilliant film critic Kelly Weston to break down and discuss the 2005 flick The Skeleton Key. It's a particular favourite of ours, and we've been waiting for literal years to sit down and talk about it in depth. The Skeleton Key, directed by British filmmaker Ian Softley, stars Kate Hudson as Caroline, a hospice nurse who finds a job caring for the husband of an eccentric older woman, Violet Devereaux, played by the legendary Gina Rowlands. Caroline moves into their plantation house to care for Ben, and very soon starts to notice that things are not as they seem, and thinks there might be supernatural reasons behind his ailing health. Itching to find out the truth? She discovers the history of the house, seeped in violence and magic, and strives to understand the role that Hoodoo plays in all of it. Now be warned, some things are best left unsaid about the film, and if you don't wish to be spoiled, I suggest you watch The Skeleton Key first and then come back to this episode. We'll be going in-depth into the details of the film and its ending, so if you don't care about spoilers, do enjoy. Take good care of my husband. Be good to his house. There are more than 30 rooms in all. For the owner, they made a skeleton key. This will open every door. The key you gave me for the house, there's a door in the attic, it doesn't open. That was their room. They were trying to conjure up hoodoo. You know what hoodoo is? It's magic. Leave it alone. Kelly, I'm <laughs> so happy you're here. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so excited to talk about this particular <laughs> film with you. And We've... not just because your beautiful yellow trousers oh, match you. the yellow Dr. Sleep cushion. I didn't even <laughs> notice that. <laughs> just painting a lovely visual <laughs> um, in the audio medium. No, we have, this has been a long time coming. Yes. I remember when we first met years and years ago <laughs> when I was doing a Stephen King thing and we immediately bonded over horror and uh, women and horror. <laughs> and this one film. And this one film in particular. I don't know even how it came up, but it was definitely one of our first conversations. I think it was that first meeting that we had when yeah. you came down to the BFI to talk about some Stephen King stuff. Yes, yeah. And and I, I was like, have you seen a film called Skeleton Key? Yeah. And I was like, oh my God, another human being has seen this film and enjoyed it. And we were like, well, we have to stay in each other's lives forever. Exactly. <laughs> and I've been sort of waiting and sitting on this uh, chance for us to actually properly talk about it. This is beautiful. It's destiny. It is. I'm, it really is. I love it. I love it. I love what's happening. Okay. So take me back in time mm. to your first viewing of the skeleton key really my journey begins even before the skeleton key 
Um, I, when I was a kid, um, I'm an only child. And so my mom would, my mom was a, as a single mom. So she would drop me off at my cousin's house and uh, we would, we were all kids, but you know, we'd be looked over by their older siblings, my older cousins. And they didn't want to like not watch the films they wanted to watch just because they were like saddled with some, you know, badass kids. <laughs> so we often ended up watching really terrible, traumatizing films, like really scary, awful horror films like Candyman, Friday the 13th. I remember uh, just specifically like being in my cousin's house afraid to go to the bathroom <laughs> after we watched Candyman. Um, it was terrible, but it also just was like such a huge part of my like form formative like cinema education. And so by the time I was a teenager, I was just like very much in love with that weird tension of like being scared and hating an experience <laughs> and just being you know often just returning to to horror films so the skeleton key came on television and i knew that i would hate it because <laughs> i like i was like i don't like this kind of stuff it's a film about hoodoo which is very distinct from voodoo but um hoodoo is folk magic and as well as being practiced in louisiana it also has like a really you know rich and traditional in the state where I grew up from America I grew up in South Carolina and so I was sort of tangentially aware of this practice and I was like oh this is a terrible mistake but I'm gonna watch it <laughs> <laughs> and so the skeleton key I must have been like 15 or something when it was on TV like was it on if it came on TV like a year later um then I yeah I would have been like 16 or so and I remember I didn't like the first time I watched it I watched it slightly like through <laughs> my hands whenever I knew something awful was going to happen whenever she went into the attic because a lot of this film is very much about like we'll talk more sophisticatedly sophisticatedly <laughs> yes, yes. Sophisticatedly <laughs> about it later but it's about you know the ways that white people don't mind their business <laughs> and you know like when she sort of like you know enters into the attic like horrible stuff is going to happen so my first viewing of this film actually I didn't even fully like see all of the things that was happening but I kept returning to it over the years and um, I'm doing like a research project on it and so uh, or it, where the film itself is involved but this has been a part of my life now for uh, over 10 years <laughs> and almost since it was released. Do you think that upon rewatching it over the years mm. and uh, really recently for this do you think it stands up as a good horror film? That is com a complex question because I think there are definitely far better horror films. Mm. And I think that its value for me is, is sort of not beyond, but kind of distinguished from its artfulness. Like, I think there are moments of this film that really drag. We'll talk about the performances. I, I do love Peter Sarsgaard. He's not giving the kind of performance that Gina Rollins is giving <laughs> in the film. It's like they're in, it's <laughs> like they're in two different films. Yeah. Aren't they? And when you know the twist at the end, you just mm. think like Peter, why didn't you? <laughs> why did you make certain choices? Um, and yeah, I think there is the the end of the film really 
presents of it's it's something that's so it's ab- it's absolutely like building in a really subversive way on the history of black people in horror films and um the way that black bodies appeared in horror films um it is somewhat clumsily handled <laughs> i don't know that it is the most yeah it's not the most i keep using this word i don't know why now sophisticated <laughs> it's not the most you know sophisticated reveal but mm. Um, I really appreciate it, I think, in part because of nostalgia and also because I think that ultimately what it is trying to do is really think about the ways that, you know, black people have both existed in like a cinematic format when you're talking about like the horror framework, but also in the South and in Southern spaces. And, you know, we'll talk about the house and what the house means and the domestic mm-hmm. and the way that it represents, not just in, you know, a sort of female Gothic way, the stifled or repressed woman, but also, you know, the slavery, the institution of slavery. And mm-hmm. um, those things are really interesting. And I think that the filmmakers are aware of that, even if they're not the best at, you know, relaying that or conveying it to the audience. Yeah, it's not as if it's not as sophisticatedly directed as Get no. Out. <laughs> No, no, no. Let's just leave it at that. But so essentially, it follows this uh, nurse mm. who sort of specializes in hospice care, yeah. played by Kate Hudson. Mm. Hollywood royalty. That's that's all. That's, that's it. all. <laughs> played by Kate Hudson. <laughs> and we kind of follow her as she gets this new job, mm. supposedly for an older. It's like the you know. Um, eccentric yeah. woman uh, yeah. played by Gina Rowlands to care for her husband who's had a stroke yeah played this- by John Don't hurt. hurt. <laughs> I was in a group chat and I hope the person who was in this group chat with me is not listening to this podcast, but if he is, he knows who he is. He said that John Hurt isn't like, isn't that great of an actor? I lost my mind. Rude. There are people who are disrespecting John Hurt already. He's not even like that long past, but you that, know, is, that is just incorrect. Isn't it disgusting? Yeah, that's just incorrect information. I and I hope that person is listening to this and he knows he's wrong. We don't. We don't approve of it. <laughs> <laughs> to lead us into a little bit talking about the performances what do you think about Kate Hudson's character because she sort of she reminded me a lot upon rewatching it of Vir- Virginia Matson's character in Candyman where she sort of goes in all guns blazing yeah. I can That's deal with everything, you know, everything is my space. I'm 25. Yeah. You know, I love okay. that line. I laughed. I, <laughs> yeah. I never laughed so hard. She was just like, I'm 25. I can do anything. I was just like, Woo. That was dope. That was a nice year. So long ago. Um, yeah, I that's so interesting that you say that because I actually got a very um, Val Luton vibe from her. Because so I when I watched this um, recently, it felt so much like those projects of his, those early projects, like very much like I Walk With a Zombie, which mm-hmm. is again about a woman who is a nurse, a Canadian nurse who is coming to this um, this predominantly black island um, to take care of this um, woman who has apparently had a stroke or she's had this weird, uh, you know, walking sickness and she seems to be brain dead, but she's caring for yeah the wife of this wealthy white plantation owner. And she comes to suspect that, you know, this woman has been turned into a zombie. And so that kind of like, you know, neutral, almost 
blank slate performance that mm-hmm. Kate Hudson is giving really reminded me of that. And I, um, but everybody should watch I Want With a Zombie because that is, you know, we're talking about like really artful, you know, construction. And, and, and Val, Val Luton was so great at really negotiating race for his time, especially because this, you know, this film was like 1940 or something. Um, but the skeleton key really reminded me of yeah. that. Yeah, 1943. Um, there's another film, Cat People, yes. which is also like, and both of those are collaborations between Jacques Tourneau, the director, and yes. Val Luton, the producer yes. slash actual kind of creative force behind it. Yes. Yeah. And he, so he, his films are very much about you know marginalized identity. That film, that last film, The Seventh Veil. Seventh Victim. Oh, The Seventh Victim. (laughs) The Seventh Victim is, you know, about the occult and it's been reclaimed of late for its, you know, maybe like queer implications. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he clearly was interested and he was a Russian immigrant and he was often like thinking about marginalized identities and ways of assimilation. And I think that The Skeleton Key is not as good a film as those (laughs) about that, but it is really interesting and it's clearly like working off of that you know, that kind of history. What do you think are the key themes of the film that it tries to address? Maybe it doesn't necessarily succeed, right. but it does want to touch upon them. I think the one of the major themes is this idea of passing. And so, spoiler alert, essentially we learn that Jenna Rowland's character, well, first I should say, she tells Kate Hudson's character, Kate Hudson plays this woman, Caroline. Jenna Rowland tells her a story about the family that lived in the house before that, you know, had these two servants, Papa Justify and Mama Cecile, and they were hoodoo practitioners. And one night on the night of a party, they got caught teaching the children hoodoo spells and the family, the the white wealthy lawyer mm-hmm. guy, um, and his friends hanged them. He lynched them, um, and it's a really brutal scene where you know they're sort of strapped up to a tree and then lit on fire. It's and, a really interesting scene that one. Yeah. If I can go back to it, because it's essentially Mama Cecile in the body of an older white woman. Yeah telling her own story yeah but saying it kind of changing the narrative slightly right in a distant way like in a in a really remote which is she's distancing herself yeah. from it oh they were famous all through the pipes they healed the sick and they hurt the mean hit a straight lick with a crooked stick as the colored say but old Thorpe, he just saw him as hell He abused him until one night, as the story goes, there was a party. And we later learned that, you know, Papa Justify and Mama Cecile were after eternal life and they found this spell that would give them years. And the way that and there's also I mean, we should say this line, which I think Kate Hudson actually delivers quite beautifully at the end of the film mm-hmm. is, you know, the thing about sacrifice is sometimes it's more of a trade. Yes. Thing folks don't understand about sacrifice. Sometimes it's more of a trade. And what we discover is that they have been switching bodies. And so at the end of the film, we come to learn that actually that scene is already horrible. It's Mm -hmm. horrible enough. But Mm -hmm. we've learned that these racists, because they (laughs) were, you know, 
in many ways blind and the film is also about that this idea of perspective and seeing but not actually knowing what you're looking at um, we learn that this man actually hung his children in the bodies of his servants and so yeah and, I, and you think about that like at the time that this was happening, it seems to be the 30s or the 40s. Mm-hmm. Um, the original night where um, before that, Jenna Rowland says something like, oh, he was he was an all he's a horrible man. He was mean. He was cruel. Um, he would do terrible things to his servants. You have to think about like, you know, that past where especially black women's bodies were so vulnerable. When you think about that history where black people in the South, their bodies were very vulnerable. Um, You could be violated, you could be attacked, you could be raped. And there was very little, if any, legal recourse for you. And so you're talking about people who are domestics and especially black women, you know, there is a history and, you know, lots of evidence and testimony about sexual assault. And so you just think about that. You're like, you know, how do you begin to exist in a space where your body is constantly over attack it it, under attack or under the threat of attack there's one point where Mm -hmm. uh caroline goes to um visit the last nurse who had worked um for jenna rollins and her husband um she had left the house because her mom says something like oh nothing but like blood and tears in that house um and because of the way the film really centralizes the body in this film especially like the the black body even though and we should discuss this you know there aren't a lot of black characters in this film they're not main characters yeah i was gonna say yeah they're actually and one of the things that really struck me upon rewatching it was that actually uh, Mama Cecile and Papa Justify don't actually get to say they anything. Don't speak. I mean, they're, they're you know, they're characters, characters do. do, but they're speaking through white, white actors. actors. And then the one, the scenes where we see them in flashback, kind of to the night in question where they take over the bodies of the the kids. Yeah. And then when we see Mama Cecile in the mirror in the very final scene in the final ritual, still it's just their images. We never right. actually get them to he- get to hear them speak in their own voices. Yeah. And this is something that I think General Rollins at least attempts to do that Peter Sarsgaard doesn't try to do at all, but. I mean, even the way that Gina Rowland speaks is like she's a she's southern and she's speaking in a very southern way but there are certain not it's not dialect but like a turn of phrase that she uses that is clearly you know kind of out of time out of time yeah. absolutely and Peter Sarsgaard is just like modern yeah <laughs> not even really southern there's there's a really beautiful thing that I think is really designed to sound off and just slightly weird from the mm. very beginning Gina Rowland's character first meets Caroline. Mm. She says something like, looks her up and down and then says, oh, I bet you're all marked up, aren't you? Yes. And that just feels so strange. Not it because is. it's judgmental, but because it's a turn of phrase that it's nobody would odd. use. Yeah, like nobody. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's out of time. And and we later learn, you know, why she's so concerned about <laughs> yeah. whether Kate Hudson has marks on her body. Or tattoos is what she's referring to. Yeah, her. of course. Um, but in, you know, that's what I mean. Like, because that, you know, this is the way that the film is sort of thinking about how that history of how does one move and and navigate spaces Mm. where you know that somebody could like kill you and and this is this is what happens although within the context of the film you know the mama cecile and papa justify survive but they've been killed and nothing happens to the thorpe family nothing happens to the people who lynched them Mm -hmm. um and so yeah i was just thinking about i was thinking about that connective tissue where Mm -hmm. it's like 
these black women who are in the film, one of them is uh, the friend, the best friend. Yeah, the black played by Joe Bryant. Yes. Uh, her name in the film is Jill. Mm-hmm. And then Hallie, who is the nurse that they go and talk mm-hmm. to, who, been the, who worked for them previously. These are women who are very concerned about like protecting themselves in a way that Kate Hudson is not. Yeah. Um, Jill will not go into the hoodoo shop. And I think Kate Hudson says to her, like, um, you know, why are you scared? I thought you didn't believe in this. And she was just like, I don't. But, you know, I still have a healthy <laughs> respect for these things. Yeah. And you think about the fact that Caroline also isn't from that era. You know, mm-hmm. not that area. Excuse me, not era. Um, she, uh, Violet, um, is played by Gina Rowland, says, like, she's not from around here. She's not going to understand my house. And it's true. Those Both of those things are true. She doesn't. And on a literal level as well, you know, she's not from there. She doesn't understand, like, actually this house, but also not what it represents. And this house is actually a very popular, popular in the sense that there's a lot of film production there. Yeah, um, it's a house we've seen plenty of times. In yeah, you've films. seen it in 12 Years yeah. of Slave. Um, and I can't think of what it's called, what that plantation is called. But it's a historic, it's, you know, it's a historical um, land site and many films have shot their movies about slavery in this particular period of time there and the antebellum house in general represents this 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 mm. quite this awful institution yeah it's quite a it's quite a powerful visceral imagery mm. and then it instantly kind of conjures something up but not for caroline because she just yeah. sort of saunders in yeah do you think that's sort of a mark her kind of confidence or disregard for the history or the culture not just of the area but also of hoodoo in general yeah is it a mark of kind of disrespect or is it something that makes her the perfect victim for them in a sense i think both i think her obliviousness just makes her sort of in every way ideal and also because she's somebody who clearly feels a lot of guilt over her father passing the one you know shred of character (laughs) that we get from her is that she um, missed the opportunity to be with her father when he died Mm -hmm. and so she dedicates her life to you know being with people as they are preparing to die Mm -hmm. and there's this moment when I was rewatching it last night where I just thought, yeah, that's not right. <laughs> because, you know, even within America, there are obviously cultural distinctions between the way, you know, people behave in the North and in the South. But there's a scene where Caroline goes to this Creole woman's house slash shop. Yes. And she just walks into this woman's house and starts rummaging through her shit <laughs> because she hears the woman playing this record, um, which is the conjure of sacrifice. So mm-hmm. Papa Cecile pa- pa- Papa Cecile. Papa <laughs> Justify and Mama Cecile have have uh recorded these mm-hmm. spells that their followers um then listen to. And Caroline uh, and Peter Sarsgaard stop at a gas station where um, this Creole woman and her children and grandchildren live. And Kate Hudson, we should also say, in this scene is the actor Isaac D. Bancale, Bancale. Uh, who you might know from Claire Denis films. He's a lovely and very attractive French actor. He's in this scene and he plays one of her grandchildren i i believe yeah um, who operates the gas station operates the gas yeah. station but yeah kate hudson just goes into this woman's house and just starts rummaging through her shit she just starts like looking yeah. through her records and it's just like lady chill that is not appropriate <laughs> well even her relationship to
to any space in general. Like mm. when she is in the house, she just goes through every single room. Yeah. She goes into the attic, which we should talk about. Yep. Kind of rummages through all the drawers. Yes. Kind of finds everything, touches everything. It's, it's just like... Just, <laughs> what you're doing to be doing yeah <laughs> and also as an as an employee of this household probably I, very inappropriate it's definitely like this is not what because i mean it's just like if you were hired to just do an office job mm. would you then like start rummaging through your bosses <laughs> like like no you wouldn't so why are you going through this house it's just like mind your business kate hudson but she won't and it is to this end that Papa, Justify, and Mama Cecile are able to trick her. Mm. There is a scholar called Camila Martin who actually likens this film or its strategies of misdirect rather to um, this uh, collection of, of folk tales by Charles Chestnut called The Conjure Woman. And um, that is, I mean, that's a complicated text. I just don't want to like <laughs> dive into it. And the, it's actually like a bunch of stories that's told by a white northerner about, you know, he's relaying stories that were told to him by an ex-slave. Um, but basically all of these stories have to do with trick, like tricking there. These, the, you know, the conjure woman is, is um, a figure or I suppose um, an in at least in a, in American literature and fiction anyway. Um, well, actually, just in American history, because, I mean, mm -hmm. there's, like, an actual, like, historic, like, conjure women existed. Um, so, you know, even without the way that she's been represented in these, like, fictional contexts, like, she was on the slave plantation to, you know, um, met out judgment. She was an adjudicator in a way, and she also gave people ways to deal with trauma and you know if they somebody that they wanted to love them they would also help them out with that so she occupied these uh you know different um she occupied this this space in the slave community in which she was kind of you know both a doctor a judge a lawyer and a protector in many ways um and how do you think kind of that figure relates to the witch is it another name for a witch which often kind of occupied those same spaces in many ways i mean i don't know because i think the conjure woman exists in a really specific um historical tradition and she well she emerges out of, of a very specific history so the ways that she would use you know hoodoo itself is like folk magic that sort of merges european folklore as well as you know west african folk belief and so it's just like an explicitly diasporic icon who you know marries this like this very painful and traumatic dual experience you know and and also like i think she's sort of exist for black people as a protector because they didn't have any other recourse um so she did you know she began on originated on slave plantations and i think even though the way that i sort of understand there was a really succinct line that Violet well mm. Cecile through Violet's body yeah. uses to describe Papa Justify and Mama Cecile which was that they heal the sick and they punish the mean yeah and I thought that was kind of essentially the description 
yeah. um, from a very Cecile point of view of right. them. You know, they were not just conjurers and kind of practitioners of hoodoo presented as kind of black magic, mm. but rather they were community leaders and yeah. they were there not just to protect themselves and to further their knowledge of the craft or whatnot, but actually to protect the people in the community that needed that protection. Right. And you mean, you also think about like how just in a kind of, you know, meta way, um, how much protection black people have needed both, you know, in real life in those actual historical spaces, but also just like in horror cinema where black people's bodies are always imaged as, as monstrous and um, grotesque and um, where these instruments of, you know, the black diaspora and these measures and strategies that they use to protect themselves would then become symbolic of this awful evil in horror films about white people who had to you know sort of stifle it or repress it or overcome it and those narratives too were just you know clearly about like misogynation and and anxieties to do with you know the mixing of those two cultures but I do think it's important to say that you know hoodoo exists in a specifically like American context like it wouldn't be the case without the history of the slave trade and the way that you know African Native American indigenous um, and also European folk beliefs sort of merge together and they're all merging together under this horrible tragic you know under under genocide and and slavery under exploitation of people um, there aren't many films that try to represent hoodoo you know voodoo has been the more kind of cinematic um yeah. version of it but that's a religion and kind of the way that the film very simplistically separates those two notions is yeah. just saying voodoo is a religion hoodoo. hoodoo is folk magic yeah i actually think that a lot of horror films have just they've just conflated the two or mixed them up and i think there is probably evidence of connection between them but really hoodoo has nothing to do with i mean hoodoo can be an extension of of any sort of religious belief but it is the pra- like folk practice like folk magic and um the actual like practice of spells and and conjuring um and it is important i think that even even though it is very conventionally given to the black character to explain all of this to Caroline, um, that it is true that that distinction needs to be made because I feel like definitely, I mean, this is not true anymore, but like when I was a kid, certainly this was like news to me. This was a revelatory because all of the horror films that I had watched up until that point were very much like voodoo is bad. You know, it's like, and that's not the case. You know, it is, we're saying like, it's a religion. Um, but I think, you know, the way that the film is both working on these two different levels, as you know, as we're saying, like it is both trying to be very um, earnest and fair in its portrayal of this religion. But at the same time, you know, there aren't a lot of black people in this film. And it's a it is a film where we are watching white people once again talk and think about things that you know and in many ways like happened because of them like conjure was this you know way to to buffer between the white you know middle class slave owning 
class in the South and black slaves who had no other protection. At least they don't win in the end. It's true. <laughs> it's true. But you and I also just like I wonder how many people watch this film mm. and because it didn't get great reviews when it came it out. People were just like, this is nonsense. It doesn't make sense. And I actually I was just like, well, it's what she deserves. because <laughs> Nobody like. Yeah. I remember on first viewing this, I went to the cinema to see it yeah. and I'd never heard of hoodoo or voodoo more than kind of a passing mention in horror films but nothing that really even attempted to explore or explain kind of the legacy of it or where it could Mm. come from or what it could look like and I remember being so shocked that Kate Hudson is defeated basically you know she is she is kind of the antagonist (laughs) in many ways as well because she respects nothing yeah (laughs) she doesn't I definitely did not. She's the protagonist, but she's also definitely not the good guy in it. Um, But, you know, Mama Cecile wins Mm. and she takes over her body. And, you know, she she trades bodies. So Caroline is trapped in Violet's older body and kind of given the same concoction that will keep her quiet. And her and John Hart are kind of ferried off to somewhere Um, and also notice what they say at that point like peter because mama cecile in kate hudson's body is saying like i wanted a black body this time (laughs) because she and you think about like she she can be free now like she doesn't have to pass as a white woman anymore Mm -hmm. and you know it's 2005 at this point um and peter sarsgaard says the black ones never stay they do not stay but it it ties into that idea of like oh no it's because the understand the history and right. the legacy of this and they respect it so i can't trick, the, right. I can't exactly. trick the, the black woman that you want to possess it's just like um no <laughs> and i think it is you know because to go back to that line that hallie gives to caroline she was just like my mom told me not to go that like not to stay there and Kate Hudson's character, like many of the women in, in female gothic literature and all of these horror films, she's an orphan. She's mm. unmoored. Mm. There's nobody really to miss her. And I mean, like that is it's, it's also, I think, part of part of her characterization, perhaps un, unwittingly. I don't I just can't I don't want to give this man too much. The writer of this, you know, I'm sure I'm sure is lovely, but he also wrote, you know, The Ghost in the Shell. And so I think like a lot of these things are just like I it's it's just a marvel to me. But anyway, I, I do Well, think I believe that films kind of have a second life when they they're do. transformed yes. and reinterpreted by audiences. So I'm gonna say that you're doing a lot of work here for him. <laughs> But I do, yeah, I think, like, you know, this, I somebody who um, just doesn't come from a, of the kind of community that, you know, is clearly gestured to in the film, these people who followed, but justify Mama Cecile, um, and this woman who, you know, is, is talking about, you know, her mother advising her, you know, this is also about, you know, legacies being passed down, like, ways of protection being passed down, um, she's just sort of like lost she's just doomed from the beginning and she is in many ways outside of all of these communities outside of the southern community outside of the black community outside of the hoodoo practicing community so she's always alone and on her own 
And what do you think about her her journey to believing in all of this? Because one of the key things for them to be able to take ownership over her body is that she has to believe in it. Yeah. So that so that the rituals actually work. Yeah. So it's kind of a slow burn, it is a slow burn. of her <laughs> kind of going into places, learning bits and pieces, and then starting to kind of try spells of her own yeah i do want to but i also kind of want to hear what you have to say first as well because <laughs> not to like turn it back on you <laughs> as a host because i do have an answer for this but mm-hmm. i want to because we were saying before like just on rewatch the film is really really slow it, is. it takes such a, yeah it takes us a long time to like get going actually but i do think do you in just in retrospect do you feel like that is just like an important groundwork that needs to be laid is there like another way that they would have been able to like accomplish that like well I mean what really interested me on rewatch and I've seen this film several times over the years and Mm. always kind of found different bits with it I was like oh that's really interesting but it's not really working it through it's just a nugget of a really good idea yeah but focusing a lot more on the practices and the rituals rewatching it just today Mm. I was like it's quite interesting that she takes baby steps Mm. in learning the craft and in practicing certain things but she also clearly doesn't understand that and that's really seen in the final ritual where she locks herself in a protective circle and mama cecile through violet goes like is that what that is that's not what you think (laughs) it is (laughs) all you've done is just make it easier for me Uh, uh. so there's everything that she learns is sort of underpinned with a certain level of ignorance Mm. and i think that's kind of the interesting bit it's like it's not just a superficial light a few candles throw some brick dust um, which is kind of the protective thing that they use if you low if you lay a brick dust on the doorway then nobody with intentions to hurt you can pass through and that's what she uses to test both peter skarsgård and um, violet's intentions towards her so when you watch it several times you can then see actually some of this doesn't really make sense Mm. that much you can see that she starts believing but it almost seems tricks that cecile is playing on her by sort of almost planting certain easy steps yes sort of like cliff notes for who to practice that she can then think that she's learned she's done it and then there is you know just plain old um you know what is what is that called where it's just like you say something to somebody like oh you wouldn't get it <laughs> and then it's just like reverse psychology yeah a lot of it is just that and i think because you know, violet keeps saying you know you wouldn't get this she doesn't belong here you wouldn't understand is that kate hudson in her arrogance is is kind of like well actually no I, I will learn about this but she and it's always with this sort of I think really um elitist uh way of thinking like I'm not doing this because I believe but it's because you know this person believes it and so I'm gonna do it because I'm a good person and I want to like blah 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 and so essentially she realizes that it's um I can't remember it's Ben John Hurt's uh character uh is called Ben Violet's husband and she thinks that he believes that he has been cursed and there is something just really I think quite uh snobbish about the way she begins her entry into this you know 
into this practice where it's just like I don't believe in any of this I think it's silly I think it's ridiculous but then she starts sort of starts to to spiral there's also a, another interesting scene where she's talking to the woman at the hoodoo shop mm. who as she's talking it's clear that she is like at this point like so far gone and the woman is just like somebody has been putting roots on you or somebody's been fixing you and she doesn't even hear it. She's just like, no, 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 no. Somebody else believes this. Like, <laughs> and it's this was like, okay. It's this whole I know better attitude. But actually, upon rewatching it, I noticed that it's there from the very beginning. So mm. when we first meet her and she's sort of sitting on the bedside by a man who's dying mm. and he passes and finds a box of his belongings and she's like, oh, is this not going to his family? And the other nurse who works with her is like, well, they don't want anything to do with him. Mm. And she's so judgmental about that. She's like, oh, you know, this care facility does not care. The minute yeah. he passed, they want to throw him out. I was like, well, hold on. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's that's not really necessarily what happened. Exactly. It's she really projects her own abandonment issues and her own kind of need for connection Absolutely. with anything onto anyone she encounters. Right. You know, so Ben as kind of her next um, uh, patient, she also then kind of tries to fix him or save him and creates all this narrative around them that it obviously is not true. Yeah. So she's quite easily manipulated because she wants to make herself be a good person right and make herself sort of fix everybody else's life yeah i mean we're talking about community and she really longs for connection i think that's so right like she really longs to be part of something and she has this friend there she has jill but you know all we ever really see of her relationship with jill is her like she goes to her apartment to like listen to this conjure record and stuff it's it's mainly just jill doing a lot of explaining to her jill is her you know and this is just within the confines also of this genre she is there to you know explicate and just say and we should also say that like when the family doesn't want any of his belongings kate hudson takes something she takes a keychain that like (laughs) so it's just like i mean if you really cared why don't you find out what their address was and maybe just send it to them and to leave it to them to decide so um she is somebody who is also clearly like very territorial yeah so she really wants to belong as you said Mm. find a community but she doesn't actually do the work or listen no to what anybody's telling her it's her biggest problem I mean, we have to to talk about her relationship with Jenna Rollins. Yes, we do. And about Jenna Rollins as Jenna well. Rollins. I mean, this is what I want to talk about. Yes, yes. Jenna okay. Rollins. Go ahead. What do you um, think about Jenna Rollins? I mean, she's amazing. I, if we could literally just, just do acting, a podcast. <laughs> acting royalty Rollins. that's been so painfully underrated oh, for I her mean, entire career. In insanely underrated her her career is really characterized for a good reason by her collaborations with her husband uh john cassavetes we also stan Mm -hmm. and also just a beautiful man um r.i.p but you know he those those films that they made together really really define her career gloria woman under the influence and and you know that is it's it's understandable it's reasonable those films are so influential but she has a career beyond that and she's mm-hmm. just an incredible actress i mean like there is something so you know not not overtly but just really subtly um 
instinctive and like sensual and just immediately felt about her performances watching her is so compelling i mean she has this way of like you know moving that is just so like you she's she's clearly somebody who moves in the way that I feel like, I mean, maybe this sounds weird to say the way, the way that I could phrase it, but you know, she moves in like a real way. Like there's the way that she moves is like a real human being. Well, she just sort of dominates the screen. Yes. Isn't she? She's got that thing that screen stars have yeah. and it's sort of unquantifiable. Right. And it's not exactly charm. It's just kind of watchability. Yes. That you just it's minute, so Which is why Kate Hudson, who is a very charming actress, mm. but, you know, when you put her in this shot with Gina Rowlands, I'm not looking at Kate. <laughs> no. And it's, it's so immensely powerful. And, you know, she's also... If you think about kind of within the context of this whole conversation kind of about witches and stuff and whether you even think or qualify Mama Cecile as a witch in her own right, mm. she's also sort of falls into that idea of a beautiful, powerful woman at her prime who is sort of quote unquote trapped in an older woman's body yeah. and she's sitting in front of another young woman and yeah. just sort of assessing her and seeing her as this, you know, as this vessel that she's going to move into potentially mm. in the near like future. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> she's just like sizing up her new house. But I really appreciated Gina Rowland's kind of subtleties this time around. So kind of the language that she uses, mm. the way she smokes those cigarettes, yes. the way she moves, you know, she doesn't move like an elderly woman who maybe is also, you know, falling sick or can't move that at, uh, in such an agile way mm -hmm. anymore. She's very kind of not just confident but there's something about the way she goes into a room and the way she talks to everyone else yeah. the way she sort of verbally smacks down not just caroline but the way she talks to her husband the, her husband yeah we, we supposedly realize, her lawyer yeah i just thought of something else she said remove your perspiration yeah. <laughs> can't wait to use it <laughs> i made i made a note of that line because i loved it so much <laughs> yeah, because he goes and this game this is why this film actually on a first watch might seem just strictly mediocre horror affair on a second watch gains so much fun elements because you're then seeing the dynamic between them in a completely different light after you know what the twist is yes where he goes oh violet you know they're the only woman you're the you're only, only woman, woman in my, in my life, life. <laughs> i know no such thing <laughs> i should say like peter sarsgaard i think is a, is a great actor he's a great actor it's just sometimes he is clearly just like i need to collect my check i have daughters yeah. <laughs> fair enough for. you know he's not and even attempting an he's, accent yeah he's not attempting an accent gina rollins is the only one who's making kind of any, any sort of effort, effort. And it's just so admirable. And it, and it's so good. Like, the scene at the end as well where they have, you know, captured Caroline. Caroline doesn't quite realize that Peter Sarsgaard's character is Papa Justify yet. You know, the way that they're also just, like, engaging with each other. The way that she's, like, talking to him. You're right. It's so full of command where she's just like, I can't do anything. I need to know where he is. And it's just, it's not frantic at all. I sounded frantic. But she sounds great. Like, she's such a, like... She's clearly an actress who is is able to um, really aggregate, like accumulate all of these details and 
it makes her so fun to watch because she's playing all of that out really subtly. Like just the grander picture is beautiful. Mm -hmm. But when you go back and watch it, you can see all of these little things that she's doing. And it makes like it really elevates the film. The film would not I would not return to this film without her performance because it really just really elevates it beyond you know as we say like mediocre <laughs> yeah. and there's something that you mentioned before kind of her commanding presence i think it kind of plays really smartly with her sort of you know legendary actress who mm-hmm. you know has done some of the most incredible work um you know some of the best and most influential american independent films with cassavetes always been underrated consistently kind of had that huge potential to be a massive hollywood star and Mm. never quite got there not because she couldn't but because of choices yeah right? i think she made she just didn't want it yeah because of her own kind of artistic integrity mm. but then also playing against that and kind of her commanding presence and the actual character that she's playing which is mama cecile who really the way that even she narrates the story of justify and cecile is always you yeah. know that papa justify is kind of you know the leader of the community and mama right. cecile is his wife but actually even the dynamic between them once we learn who they really are yeah she's always the it's one in charge it's actually her yeah. yeah i thought about that because there's also a moment that struck me there's a scene um toward the end and i can't remember i think mama uh cecile is played by jenna rollins and kate hudson are in the attic and peter sarsgaard is coming out of a door and like turning to go down the hallway with a candle and there's something about that image that's very like catholic but Mm -hmm. in a in a you know an apostle way people who are followers would just sort of be walking in that way and it sort of yeah it really like made me think of her like there's nothing in the film beyond what she herself says and as we know she does a lot of double talking that it actually suggested like he she is not in any way like subservient or secondary to him Uh, no yeah and i think like you we should also mention you know the performances that gina rollins is really well known for are those expressions of vulnerability and mental illness. She's often played women who are fragile or, you know, I've been saying this in air quotes, damaged Mm -hmm. in some way. And, you know, also thinking about the tradition of the, quote, mad woman in the attic and how amazing it is that she, like, that character is playing on all of those levels. Like, you're so right. Yeah, it just, she really, like, embodies that. And, And in those characterizations of, you know, women who are, you know, suffering from mental illness or women who have been violated or, you know, traumatized in some way, there is, you know, this implication of when you think about those characterizations of a kind of split, of a kind of like, you know, tearing. And then you think about this character that she's playing, which sort of embodies this hybridity, not just racially, but, you know, thinking like as in as an older white woman who owns property, who owns land and how well protected she is, you know, it's just I'm so fascinated by all of those implications. Like this is a we it's cannot be said enough that we are meant to be looking at a black woman in a white woman's body. So these these white women essentially become like protective houses or like protective like structures. Yeah, and that I wanted to pick up on something kind of because we mentioned uh, the use of spaces before, mm-hmm. and you've talked a little bit about kind of the 
the cultural history and yeah. the imagery of that particular house but then there's also the spaces within the house mm. very namely the attic yeah which plays into a lot of gothic imagery yeah. and a lot of kind of you know air quotes haunted spaces in mm. a house and kind of those spaces of mystery that need to be unlocked but also probably should stay locked Closed. away yeah so kate hudson's character caroline kind of finds this skeleton key in which is the title of the film as mm. well and a big deal is made out of this one key that can open any door in the house yeah so she goes into the attic and starts rummaging around yeah, she does <laughs> yeah so what do how kind of do you think the film plays into our notions of what a mysterious haunted space yeah space looks like and behaves like well this is the thing i mean like in so many ways this film like uh, you know i keep going back to this movie but it it seems very pertinent i walk with the zombie is very much like this retelling of jane eyre which is where Susan Gubar and Sandra Gilbert took their title from The Mad Woman in the Attic, which is basically the sort of um, reflection on all of these Victorian women writers who either use like a nom de plure or I'm so sorry (laughs) to all of the people out there, the way that I'm pronouncing these words. Uh, But, you know, they would um, use they would have to obscure their identity in some way. And it was just very stifling for that the experience of that was quite stifling and so the attic is almost seen as this place where their true selves were locked um and they used this the bit in jane Eyre. another spoiler for no one has read jane the one person has read jane Eyre. there is um the heroine's love interest his first wife is locked in the attic and so that's where that book takes its um symbolism from and it's interesting in this case because you, we have to make room for the fact that this is a Southern context and so it's Southern Gothic and we're thinking about this house and the attic is always a haunted space. And because it has traditionally been looked at as a, you know, a haunted female space, it's sort of doubly interesting because you also think like the house in general is just a space. It's just the domestic where women had or supposedly had, you know, free reign, but actually when you unpack all of those layers and essentially what a lot of feminist scholarship will sort of reveal to you is that actually the house is a a symbol of patriarchy and it is, you know, a a man's uh, dynasty. That doesn't actually need to be put in quotes because this is, you know, those houses are passed down, they're ancestral, they belong to families. And so I think in this way, the attic becomes sort of doubly interesting because we're thinking about a black woman who worked there as an actual domestic um she was she's a maid and also within the film we know that papa justify is learning what is he has a book that's called like legal wills for dummies or something like that it's just like basic law and they're trying to you know that in this way they have been through the um, white bodies that they've been passing through, they've also been passing down this property so that the property always belong to them and they yeah. can't... Is it There's there's a line in it. There's about- a line at the end which Peter Skarsgård, Laura character, tells um, Joy Bryant. Yeah. It's like, oh, they must have really liked her because they left the house to her. Yeah. Isn't that neat? Yeah, and Joy Bryant is like, um... <laughs> Um, but you do wonder about it because, like, Kate Hudson's character 
did call Joy in the middle of the showdown with Papa Justify and Mama Cecile, mm-hmm. and it is like a very weird call. And do you think, like, I don't know, will Jill say something? It's, it's very striking that, you know, they would leave her the house when she hadn't been there that long. Mm-hmm. And Jill, knowing that actually she had so much bad stuff to say about Violet and what she thought about Ben. So it's interesting in that way. But yeah, I think the the house sort of takes on all of these different interesting connotations when you think about, you know, this raced woman who is becoming um, typically as people of color who are, are racialized, but then the film in a sense also racializes the, the white bodies because we're at the end of the film, we've now realized that, yeah, actually we this is a film that's sort of signaling actually to not white spectators because it's all about like looking around things and like sort of taking into account the uh this legacy or tradition of like double speaking and you know the film is not we keep talking about its artistic (laughs) value and i do think it's good like i don't want to shit on this film because i've watched this film a lot and i'm you know clearly uh i've i've written about it and so I clearly have a lot of time for it, but I also think that that is is really it's an it's become such an interesting text, or at least it's trying to do something so interesting that is commendable mm-hmm. at the very least. What do you think about the actual rituals and the way they're portrayed, and kind of all of the artifacts of hoodoo? Because one of the things that really struck me that I don't think I've seen elsewhere is the notion that Papa Justify and Mama Cecile use a recording of their own voices. They replicate it and they pass it down to other people to kind of continue the practice and continue their teachings of the hoodoo practice. And they use that as well in the final ritual when they take the body off, um, off Kate Hudson. That's interesting because I also I hadn't really even thought about like the technology aspect of it because you think of something like folk belief or folk Mm -hmm. practices as being a largely oral tradition, like an oral um, practice or or handing down. Um, And I don't know too much about hoodoo. I know as much as like, you know, there are certain my focus is is generally on the conjure woman and and mm-hmm. how she has been represented in in horror films specifically american horror films um and to that i would just say like this is definitely the f- one of the few films that i'm aware of anyway that attempts to like portray it in a way that is ch- i think uh, you know it's it's very human (laughs) and I was trying to search for another word but actually it's true because like a lot of it's certainly a lot of period films films from the 30s and 40s and beyond will portray those practices as like you know it's very it's choreographed in such a way that it seems like a kind of like orgy type situation Mm -hmm. where it like is all to do with um the body and to the site like the spectacle of it is meant to distance the viewer of it which is sort of like signaling to a non-black viewer um and there's always something you know within it that suggests like a kind of you know evil or, or darkness it's always sort of shadowed with a real like you know there's something grotesque about this we're meant to be watching something that is grotesque and actually this the ritual of it is imaged like quite 
beautifully. Um, I was talking about like earlier, you know, that scene where Peter Sarsgaard is coming out and he's like holding a candle, like the way that it's mm-hmm. lit is like quite dark and it seems like a, it's a religious experience. Um, and then in the final scene with the final ritual, I thought kind of the, their use of kind of the semicircle yeah. of candles yeah. is really gorgeous. Yeah. And it's so like clearly like quite stylized and given a level of humanity that I think is just like broadly not within horror text just in general the way that that scene is presented I think is really quite um I shouldn't say generous because it's just it should just should be the case but Mm. there's something about it that is quite sincere you know and so I was quite appreciative of that to start wrapping up a bit I want to talk about how do you think this fits into the wider legacy of presenting um, the supernatural or particularly kind of the, the witch character or, you know, maybe the, the more appropriate term would be conjure woman as yeah, opposed to witch. I think, yeah, I would love to see. I mean, there are absolutely films out there. Um, there's a short film by this woman called Brie Newsom, which everybody should watch. It's very easy to watch. It's a short film, guys. I think it's like 14 minutes long. And... Um, it's called Wake, and I want to say it actually came out around this time, if not 2005, like maybe 2008, 2009, something, somewhere around there. And it is about the Conjure Woman, and it is it is fully, Brie Newsom is a black woman, she's a director, and um, it's an all-black cast. And it is about this woman who goes, whose father is poisoned, and she goes to a Conjure Woman to ask her for a husband and you know she it's it's you know raising all of these questions about like you know do we trade like one institution for another because this woman has essentially we learn um been living with her father for so long that she's past marrying age in quotes mm-hmm. um and so there are films out there that actually do and you just have to find them like they present um the conjure woman in an, in an interesting way i would also obviously like advise everybody to watch this film ease by you which is <laughs> the film that uh <laughs> i am eased by you i think point. you're the, inter- the international uh, advocate for eased yeah. by you at this <laughs> point and like infoy to all countries but yeah i think within the broader legacy this is certainly just like it doesn't get everything right but it is just a, a commendable entry into this tapestry these images are, you know, really underrepresented. Like black people don't get, especially in in this context, don't get a lot of fully defined portraits of themselves in, in film. And it is a problem that on screen, even though there is like a real, there's a reason for it. And it's so interesting. It's given us like so much time. Like we've been able to just like sit here and talk about like all of the fascinating layers, but it's still a film that's populated almost entirely by white people. It's Mm -hmm. the main cast is, is all white. Only white people speak in this film. So it's really complicated. I'm really ambivalent about it, but yeah, I think it's, it is super important. It's still super relevant, if only because it's taken us so long to get <laughs> something like this that even attempts to try and, you know, navigate those very, like, very real issues and very real practices, like a real community. 
Thank you so much for your time and your insight. Is Thank there anything you. that you would like to plug that, or yes. where can people find your work online? Uh, you can find my work at various places, film comment, hyperallergic. Um, I have recently written something for movie notebook that I'm very proud of, and hopefully it will be out by the time I've done this podcast, but it's a review of Atlantics, which is one of my favorite films of the year. And if you're in London, you can see it this Friday. I think if you're in New York or LA or a big city like that as well, you can also see it on Friday. I would love it if people could see in the cinema, if you can, because it's gorgeous and you should just be able to sit there with it, but also see it on Netflix because it's coming to Netflix. And also we stand Maddie Diop. One hundred percent. Thank you so <laughs> Thank much. Thank you so much for having me. And that is all for another episode of the Final Girls Podcast. Please do rate, subscribe, and share your thoughts about this on social media. We're in all the socials as at the Final Girls UK. I can be found not going into locked attic rooms and minding my own business on Anna Be Demented. And today's guest, Kelly Weston, is at Kelly underscore Weston. From my damnness, please, Lord. In the time, Lord, take me. From the dry dust, break me. Out of these chains, bring me. From the devil's house, take me.